Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle where today we'll be talking about the only news worth following. We'll be talking about events in Palestine, how they unfolded and the consequences and implications that we are witnessing as well as those we should expect. With me today, Dr. Dawood Abdullah, Director of Middle East Monitor and Dr. Azam Tamimi, author and expert on Palestine. Enjoy. It was evidently clear that what happened on the 7th of October and the events that occurred subsequently point to the fact that this time things are different. I mean, I've lost count of how many times Gaza has been attacked over the course of the past 16 years. But this time, for some reason, it feels different for a number of reasons, not only because of how this begun, but also of um, how it unfolded and the narrative that accompanied the events on both sides, on the Palestinian side, as well as the Israeli side, and also the international sort of reaction. So maybe the first question that we ought to open with is, is this a game changer? Is this something that will have an indelible impact on how the Palestinian cause is progressing or otherwise? Will it have ramifications that will stay with us for a while? How do you see this? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I think it is a game changer in the sense that the myth of the invincibility of the Israeli army has been shattered. A faction, militant group, resistance movement invaded Israel, which was the part of Israel was filled with military bases and, and, and experts. And they were defeated. They were literally caught with their pants down. Literally, some of them. We saw when they were captured. This is the game changer. Because in the minds of many countries across the region, that this, this is the army that cannot be, you know, it's invincible, cannot be defeated. I mean, what, what proved this furthermore is the fact that within 24 hours, Netanyahu was on the phone calling for help. You see to the Americans calling. And they get... $5 billion worth of weapons and armor, etc., every year. And they couldn't, you know, uh, the intelligence field, the military field, you know, and, and, and then the, the, the media coverage was so disgraceful, <laughs> you see, by saying, well, this is Dash. Yeah, it coined, of course, by Netanyahu, the supreme liar. And, you know, um, trying to create this image in the West that we fight in Dash. Dash is, is Hamas and Hamas is that. No one is buying this anymore, you see, because what happened, it was all on camera. <laughs> Everything that unfolded was on camera. So there was no need, you see, to, to pander to this, you know, um, deceptive, uh, you know, um, lies that were coming out of Israel. And the way that, the, the, the way that it was also described was probably unprecedented in the life and times of the struggle, of the struggle itself. I mean, the way that Western media took it upon themselves to comment on, on what happened. Arab media, Arab official media, and obviously social media. And, you know, we now have the, the spectacle of this being on social media. So most of people are actually consuming their news and what's happening. And the images that went around were, went around through posts, either on Facebook, on various social media platforms. So all of a sudden, you had um, a different kind of broadcaster and a different kind of receptor. Of, of, a, of a consumer of that of that media, so things things are definitely different. Well, definitely, definitely. And uh, uh, what really interested me most 
of the uh, immediate analysis that was on the 7th of uh, October when people heard the news and started seeing uh, the images coming from uh, Palestine is the comparison made with the famous Tet assault in Vietnam in 1968. And I read uh, several commentaries that likened what happened on the 7th of October with what happened during the Tet Offensive, in at least in two respects. First, the surprise element, and second, the long-term uh, repercussions. Immediately after the Tet Offensive in 1968, public opinion in America changed radically, and the American administration started preparing the ground for withdrawal or complete uh, uh, dislodging from the Vietnamese uh, problem. I think what will happen in the case of this attack, though of course uh, in the immediate term uh, it's causing the Gazans a lot of pain, it's destroying their livelihood, it's probably banishing them. Uh, the Israelis want to depopulate Gaza, they want to create a second Nakba, but in the medium and long term this is going to be the end of the Zionist project. Mm -hmm. you, you actually believe that? You actually think that that is... Without doubt. Without within doubt, reach. Without doubt. Um, and, and this uh, is further confirmed in my mind by the rush of the Americans and the Europeans to express sympathy and support for Israel because they really felt probably uh, more than any time before the vulnerability and the fragility of uh, of this uh, of this entity. I mean, it's 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 quite interesting because one of the the the, the significant characteristics of the of the public narrative or the dominant narrative uh, issued by the mainstream media here across Europe and the United States, you sense a sense of panic. There's that element of it's as though countries are fretting. That this this is different. It's not, you know, the sort of uh, feigned, measured uh, approach, the objectivity and the such. No, no, no. There is a, a, a very clear sense that people are panicking. And what uh, Azam just said right now regarding this could be, in his estimate at least, the end of of the Zionist project. I mean, it's... The, the signs were there actually before, and probably Hamas read the, the, the political map very carefully and they, and they detected all these weaknesses. I mean, in, in, the, in the recent months, since the demonstrations against Netanyahu began, uh, people was, and you know, and the reasons how he wanted to dismantle the, the judicial system, the intelligence, their intelligence was saying that the army is weak because a number of soldiers were saying, we don't want to fight for this army anymore. Uh, pilots of, air, of fighter jets were saying, we're not going to fight, we're not, you know. So the signs of fragility were there. Uh, and 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 what happened on the seventh of October is that it just came out uh, more more blatantly, more apparent uh, to the public. But the Israelis themselves, their intelligence knew that there were fundamental weaknesses in the in the military and intelligence structure of the state, and they were saying that we face an existential, you know, um, problem here if we don't address it. 
you know, because the democracy collapsed, you see, the military is collapsing, the intelligence is collapsing. So what's the future? This is a time when, when it should be, one should assume that it's the height of normalization with the surrounding Arab states. So in a way, Israel should be, theoretically at least, should be at its most strong at its most prominent as at its most you know thriving at times like this for god's sake it was talking with saudi arabia you know the pot of gold within the normalization process so how could this fragility be whilst politically it was uh, it was it was flying well normalization wasn't really a sign of strength because it was normalization with regimes not peoples regimes that are unelected unrepresentative of the people they rule, regimes that have their own vulnerabilities. Um, and we saw this uh, in the Arab Spring, which uh, is likely to be repeated, and especially because of what's going on in Gaza today. So I think the Israelis were under an illusion. They were under, they were under an illusion that now they crossed over the Palestinians, they sur surpassed the Palestinians, stepped on them, to reach the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, Sudan. Of course, Jordan and Egypt had already been included a long, long time ago. And now, uh, finally, Saudi Arabia. And by re uh, getting to Saudi Arabia, they thought they were going to be, that that was going to be the uh, bridge uh, carrying them to Pakistan, Malaysia, Indonesia, and, uh, Bangladesh, probably, uh, Muslim nations in Africa and elsewhere. And, um, and, and this development comes, yes, at a very high price, but to shatter that dream and dissipate that illusion. Yeah, but the, the thing is, just to continue on, on this trend of thought, is that they wanted to you know, put the Palestinian issue at the bottom of the agenda. You know, that's Netanyahu's plan all along. And to tell the world that the real problem is Iran and not Palestine. Is, once we solve Iran, the Middle East will be peaceful. But that's inadvertently what they've done. They've put Palestine right at the top now, not just in the region, but globally. In South America, you have Colombia, you have Brazil, you have you know major powers in South America speak. They try to 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 um, push Malaysia to to condemn Hamas. Malaysia, they said no, we're not going to condemn Hamas. You know, so the, the world is a whole you know um, a backlash. It backfired on, on, on the Israelis that this whole agenda of normalization would, would just dissipate the Palestinian. It has not happened. And, and also, I mean, just a few seconds ago, we were talking about the fate of the Zionist project itself. I mean, the fact that we saw the kind of reaction on a global level, the protests that took place, um, you know, last Saturday, the first weekend after the, after the events, and the outpour of not only numbers, but emotions um, from people across the board. And one of the things that I noticed was that amongst the commentators on social media and on the media, on even mainstream media, is the quite marked uh, increase in the number of Jewish voices here in the UK, across Europe, in America, in Canada, people uh, quite 
openly stating their Jewishness and talking about the heritage and the legacy of their own families, and yet saying this, what is happening, is you know the the kind of reaction that Israel is uh, is unleashing is an act of genocide. It's an act of war crime. All of a sudden, you know, only uh, a couple of years ago when B'Tselem, for instance, came out with their report stating that Israel was operating an apartheid system, people were sort of timid to actually state that openly and publicly. But now all of a sudden, we're not, we've gone beyond apartheid. We're talking about war crimes. We're talking about crimes against humanity. And openly, people are stating that what is happening in terms of the reaction of Israel are these are wars uh, against uh, against humanity? Are war crimes and the such? So you sense that coming back to the issue of of, of the Zionist project, that surely, you know, when seventy five years on from the Nakba, you have the third generation of Palestinians who are now leading the streets across the world in protest. When you have young Palestinians feeling more of an affinity to their Palestinian identity, understanding the complexities of, 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 the, of, of the issue itself, talking about its Islamness, if you wish, talking about its relationship to, you know, to, to the aspect of humanity rather than it being a, a very narrow nationalistic project. All of this. You know, what, what is really significant about all of this, Anas, is that The cycle is being completed. The, the early days of, the Zion, of Zionism, most Jews were opposed to Zionism. Uh, and then because of the Holocaust, because of the persecution of the Jews, many Jews had no option but to believe in Zionism. And I, I once had a, a debate with a rabbi in London, in a synagogue in London, and I presented this to him and I said to him, don't you agree that initially most Jews were opposed to Zionism and then only when Hitler came, that there was massive conversion or gradual, not really massive, but gradual conversion toward Zionism. He said, yes, I agree fully with you because until Hitler came, we thought the, the Zionists were not telling the truth and that our rabbis were telling the truth. But Hitler made us realize that it was the Zionists who were right about uh, the threat posed to Jews uh, in Europe. And now the cycle is coming to a close because an increasing number of Jews are dissociating themselves uh, from Zionism and saying this is not really our cause. And, and this is really important because the conflict in Palestine is not between the Arabs and the Jews. It's not between the Muslims and the Jews. Uh, the Jews lived in uh, that part of the world for centuries. No problem whatsoever. They are the people of the book. They have a covenant from the Prophet and from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a problem that started with colonialism, with an invasion. That's what it is. And I think an increasing number of people, especially among Jewish communities around the world, are seeing this very clearly. No, I'm just, Dr. Hassan was mentioning, the, you know, which is quite correct, the issue of colonialism. But the, the way it started, let's you know, continue along that line. It was with a lie. It started with a fabrication that this is a land without a people. And, you know, once you're on that trajectory, you have to keep on doing it. Absolutely. And until today... And keep lying. keep lying. Keep lying about everything. <laughs> they, all, they said, you keep lying until people believe your lies. So he, you know, he said, he, they, and, and Biden believed him. He saw babies being beheaded. You know, it's so disgraceful. You know, but um, that's the nature of Zionism. That's the nature of the project. 
Well, that's the nature of colonialism, isn't it? I mean, this is exactly what the French did in Algeria. This is exactly what every colonial authority did in every country that became their victim, whether it's in Africa or Latin America or in Asia. It's demeaning uh, the indigenous populations, lying about uh, uh, history in order to justify aggression. It's not just simple lies. <laughs> They said we, we, we are coming to this region to bring civilization. We're going to bring to this backward part of the East civilization. And on t yesterday, Netanyahu, he was saying, oh, it's a, a war against civilization. The war against Hamas is a war, or Gaza is a war against civilization. That's the civilization to, to massacre women and, and babies. The vast majority who've died in this, in this war so far are children and women. Let's, let's talk about the Palestinians. What happened on the 7th of October was an expression, in my view, of defiance on behalf of the Palestinian people. This wasn't uh, necessarily about, uh, about Hamas or about uh, the Qassam brigades. This was about the Palestinian people um, expressing how they felt after three generations of occupation, of subjugation, of oppression, of, of, um, of taking away their possessions as well as their rights and human dignity. And this is affirmed by the fact that the Palestinians, all Palestinians across the board, ideological, religious, and the such, inside Palestine, Gaza, the West Bank, inside 48, as well as abroad, how they expressed you know, their, their emotions and their feelings regarding this expression of, uh, of, 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 of defiance. But, I mean, obviously this needed to be framed in a particular way to demonize it. And this needed to be sought in a way so that basically the evil side of what happened, plus the lies that you, you, you mentioned, were added, you know, to the layers of the narrative that was then dispersed. But it seems that there were very little takers. I mean, apart from those who were pro-Israel from the start, not, no one took the story. No one bought that particular way in which uh, the, the story was framed. I agree with you, but I think also this event marks an important change in the strategy of the resistance. You know, I, I wrote a book on Hamas and uh, I claim to, to, to know a little bit about how it, it works and the thinking of its... Uh, leaders, Dawood also uh, wrote a book. Until recently, the strategy of Hamas was a defensive one. And I remember having, when I visited Gaza in 2012, I remember having uh, a discussion with uh, uh, Ismail Haniya about the, the movement strategy. And he said to me very clearly, the liberation of Palestine is beyond us. This is something for the Ummah to do. But our responsibility here is to defend ourselves. And if the Israelis attack us, we respond. But this attack on the 7th of October was the outcome of the accumulation of provocations by the Israelis over the past several years. Attacks uh, on the people in the West Bank, in various places, burning their crops, killing their children, uh, making their life impossible. Uh, the attempts to desecrate Al-Aqsa Mosque, to confiscate it, to seize it, uh, to prevent Muslims from worshipping in it. Continuous attacks on Gaza as well. The siege that continued for 17 years, uh, that made uh, life in, in Gaza... Uh, intolerable. Intoler intolerable. I think the resistance in Gaza had no 
option but to uh, think of taking offensive action rather than remain content with defensive action because there are also about five to six thousand Palestinians who are in Israeli prisons. They need to get them out. And Israel has refused to negotiate, has refused to do anything. And the peace process uh, was increasingly turning against the Palestinians because the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah is a collaborating agency with Israel. I think now the strategy of the uh, resistance, as we saw on the 7th of October, is not to wait for Israel to attack, but to preempt. How do you how do you see this? Do you agree with Absolutely. that? Absolutely. And and how do you find that this will also impact the next phase of the struggle? You know the the the, the thing which triggered in my mind, you know the 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 move from Hamas was the. The, the desecration, the constant, the daily incursions into Masjid al-Aqsa. That was a provocation one step too far. And, and it's not just a link to Palestine anymore. You know, the, the, the Muslim world will realize that, you know, yes, they are, they are the guardians, but we have to support them from behind. And they are capable. Just a little more help, just a little more support and solidarity, and we'll get there. We liberate Al-Aqsa and Al-Quds if we support them because they have the, the determination, the resolve, the will to do it. Do they have the strategic uh, thinking? Do they have the capacity to see that? Because, I mean, it's not just, you know, muscle and it's not just brute force. It's It also takes... A... The West Bank is changing. In the last year, we've seen significant changes in the West Bank, which is, of course, geographically closer to Jerusalem as part of, of, of the West Bank. And, and, and that scenario is changing. The, the, the problem, of course, is, is the collaborators. That, so far. Well, I, I was just going to say, I mean, don't you think that the biggest obstacle and the impediment is actually those from within. Oh yeah, it's it's the Palestinian Authority and the way in which uh, Mahmoud Abbas responded was was nigh on disgrace. But every colonial authority does this. Every colonial authority creates a fifth column. Uh, I mean, the, the Vichy government in France is is the best well known example in this regard. Uh, but the, the people who believe in their rights will uh, have to devise ways of uh, defeating this. And uh, I, I think the success of the Hamas onslaught and the failure of Israeli reconnaissance and monitoring uh, devices shows how tightly planned this offensive was. Not a word leaked uh, to the Israelis or to their agents. And, and, and to me, this, this, this is really amazing because one of the reasons for the continuous setbacks in the West Bank, when young men come together in Jenin or in other places, and they want to put up resistance to pressure the Israelis to stop their violations, is that collaborators uh, inform on them, mostly inform to the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah, and the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah relays the information to the Israelis, because security collaboration is continuous, 24 hours. In this case, nobody knew anything. Nobody, not the Americans, not the Israelis, not the Palestinian Authority, not anybody in the neighborhood. And I think this should probably interest researchers and experts on warfare 
to to uh, to think about and even write about. We're talking about the actual reaction of the Palestinians in the aftermath, in the immediate aftermath of the seventh of October. But obviously, over the subsequent days, it appeared that the Palestinians, the people of Gaza particularly, were going to pay a hefty price. And we've seen uh, an attack that is that could be labeled as being crazed, rabid, uh, absolutely out of control, and it's a lashing out more than a, uh, an organized attack. Uh, and it seems that um, uh, someone is intent on ending this once and for all, in their mind at least. Well, Netanyahu, he knows if he, his political future is on the line right now, And he has to do something to save I, himself. I would suggest even more than his political future, his legacy, exactly. his actual name, his reputation. Uh, he's facing jail. You know, there's so many charges against him there, you know, waiting to be, to be taken up. And he has to have some kind of political, you know, victory of sorts. It's just to wriggle himself out and to continue in power. And that is on one level. So I, I think he, he's going to struggle really. And and this is why we had this. You said that is is rabid. Well, it's 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 not self defense as they claimed. This was revenge. This was revenge, pure and simple. And it's gone beyond that. And and the world is waking up gradually. In Spain, we have ministers calling out that this man should be brought to the Hague. Somehow, he has to be brought to the Hague. But the, the problem is, we have the prosecutor in the Hague who sent, within days, monitors to Ukraine. <laughs> within days, he sent monitors to the Ukraine. His name is, what, Karim Khan, a Muslim guy. <laughs> he sent monitors to Ukraine. And still after 10 days now, you know, no, nothing. not a word from him about, about Gaza. Absolutely Not nothing. a word. And so, you know, that sense of injustice, you know, is running deep in Palestine and, and, and across the world. It's and, running and very but deep. But people are seeing through it. Yeah, it's Do running deep. And, and these are causes, you know, they would trigger something. You know, we tend, and our media in the West tend to look at the results. Oh, Hamas, you know, invaded Israel. What are the causes? Yani, let's go back to the causes. And this, this kind of injustice, this kind of duplicity and double standards, you know, it's, it's, it's getting to people across the world and every single time it seems that the media handle this as though history has just started has just begun and they did contextualize you know this event from whatever occurred over the course of the 17 past 17 years of blockade yeah, 17 I mean, years it's 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 unimaginable you know if i i sometimes think to myself that if i was to if i was to tell the story of gaza I would find it very difficult to put this in words that make sense. I mean, to say that a, a population of two and a half million, a metropolis, you know, larger than, you know, a major city in the UK, for instance, that is caged in an area that is so small and crowded and not for a week, not for a month, not for a year, but 17 for 17 years. years. Mm -hmm. 17 years. I mean, I, I was trying to explain this to a young journalist just a few days ago. And I was saying, imagine that... You have an admission uh, at to study at a university somewhere, but you don't know whether you can travel or not. 
you have um, an appointment to see a surgeon in order to carry out a life-saving surgery, but you don't know whether you'll make it or not. Dialysis. Simply because you never know. You can't set something in your diary and then stick to it because life doesn't work like that. And that's on a very simple, you know, trying to, to explain level. But the fact is that we saw this. We witnessed this. We are... You know, eyewitnesses to what's happened. What gives what us hope? Did. What gives us hope is if they can do this after 17 yeah, years of blockade. If they were free, what would they do? It's incredible. It's incredible. What would they do if they were free? It was absolutely. <laughs> and the siege didn't work. Didn't didn't uh, prevent them or didn't bar them from developing themselves. And develop. but uh, regarding the media, you mentioned the media several times. I, I think it is scandalous that the media in the West is willing to scrutinize what politicians do or say on any domestic issue, but not when it comes to foreign policy. I don't know what's wrong with these guys. It's as if foreign policy is something that... They, Set in stone. They, and they trust politicians about it. Okay, if politicians mess up in domestic affairs, why do you trust them to, to, be, to do very well in, 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 foreign, in a foreign policy? Uh, and, of, uh, and of course, uh, the media establishments, regrettably in the West, although they enjoy certain freedom regarding certain issues, when it comes to Palestine, they come under enormous pressure from the lobbies, as well as from the advertisers, if they, if they, if they rely on uh, advertisements uh, for their funding or on donations. And uh, I, I think a large number of people who work in these media establishments know the truth and would love to talk about it with sincerity but they're intimidated they're threatened and they some of them fear they could lose their jobs well the guardian there's this guy the guardian the cartoonist who lost yeah, his job yes he lost his job for this issue. it's a scandal isn't it <laughs> and several several anchors and presenters have been sidelined despite the fact of you know their their fame and their you know their, their their success in what they do but they've been sidelined because of the protest against uh, so that against exposes the whole thing about free speech you know it's the when they burn the quran they say well okay europeans have free speech let them burn the quran said the mock if you fly the palestinian flag there's no free speech and this by the way i mean this is something i want to touch upon we have a home secretary that Uh, deemed it almost, I mean, thank God she didn't go as far, maybe she couldn't, legally she couldn't, but she went in as, as much as she could in order to show or to, ex to express that carrying the Palestinian flag was almost something that the police needed to be. To I, think be she want, I, think, I think she wanted to influence the police in the manner in which they interpret the law. She wanted them to interpret the law the way she wants it to be interpreted rather than the way it should be interpreted. And uh, I, I think the, the, the police just ignored her because rallies were held. The Palestinian flag continued to fly high. Um, and I think now some uh, legal action is threatened uh, if she went ahead with this uh, idea of hers. I mean, it's, I mean, obviously we're talking here about Suella Braverman, but uh, the Home Secretary, but It doesn't stop at her. I mean, in interviews watched by millions of people, uh, people like the, the leader of the opposition, the head of the Labour Party, asked about whether Israel had the right to basically 
you know, take away necessities, life necessities from and, and, and de you know, deprive the people of Gaza from electricity, from water, from basics and the such. And he said, and he said, yes. And this is we're talking about Keir Starmer. We're talking about the former attorney, attorney general. We're talking about someone who is specialized in human rights law. We're talking about someone... I mean, this is... No, I, you, you're, you're talking about someone who's, who has his eyes on 10 Downing Street. Yes. I mean, we, we expect elections anytime next year. And uh, also in America, this is an election issue for them. Uh, and that's why they, they, they're trying to appease the Zionist lobby in whatever way they can because of the elections. I think it's... Um, I mean, once where we have our eyes on what's happening in, in Palestine, but this truly is something which is quite dangerous for here in the UK, for the West generally, when you have the leader of the free world openly stating an absurd lie and then coming back from it in a very measly manner, when you have the probably, potentially, the future prime minister of the UK going against something that I would suggest GCSE students in law would know and understand the very basics, the ABCs of and, and international you, and law. And you know, Anas, that, that child who was killed, actually butchered in Chicago, his blood is on Biden's hands. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. it was Biden Absolutely. who incited that hatred and who provoked that man into killing the child and attempting to kill his mother because he heard the president saying he saw pictures of beheaded Israeli children. Yeah, babies. Oh, babies, babies, yes. He said babies. Babies. When even the Israelis themselves say, you know, said openly that we, we didn't see, we didn't see those bodies, we didn't see evidence of, of that yet. So, you know, we are approaching, I mean, we're talking about uh, a long-term indelible impact on the struggle of the Palestinian people. But I, I, I sense that there is going to be a long-term impact globally of this, not only because of what's happened, but also because of the, the kind of narrative and discourse and the framing of the whole, of the whole series of events here in the West. Yeah, I, I think in the, in, in, the, in the West, in Europe, in the North, the global North, the narrative will not change significantly. The, the approach you know, by, by leaders in, in these countries but I think in, in, in the global South, people will become more assertive. You have, for example, in uh, Ramaphosa coming out and saying, this is an apartheid state and we, we will not condemn Hamas, you know, in Colombia. So I think in the global South, we're going to see a, a pushback against against the you know the, the the narrative that is dished out from 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 the north and this is in 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 the interest to the advantage of of the of Hamas and the Palestinian people i always like to um, uh, compare palestine with south africa yes. yeah. who would have thought in the 70s that apartheid would come to an end in south africa i remember in the 80s i used to work um, as a translator in bahrain and I used to translate uh, statements issued by the UN uh, about uh, the plight of Mandela and his comrades who were in prison uh, at the time. And there was very little interest in what was going on in South Africa. Eventually, apartheid came to an end. Eventually, the world changed. And Nelson Mandela, who was 
designated by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan as a terrorist who would never be allowed to set foot on British soil, came to Britain. On a state visit. Was given a hero's welcome on a state visit. And now he has a statue, I think, in the center of London. It happens. And I remember once I was speaking in Trafalgar Square in one of the rallies in uh, early on, a long time ago. Uh, and I brought up this example and said, probably one day we will see here in Trafalgar Square, so and so being hosted to speak to us after the resistance movement in Palestine is no longer seen as a terrorist organization. And, and by the way, this, this, this issue, I, I, I'd like to touch upon it and, be, and I, I'd like to bring it up because it is so sensitive, because it is so controversial, because it is seen as a no-go area. Once again, the, the, what you proposed is why is it that we take our ministers and our government to task on local policies, on transportation, on the NHS and the South? On, on organizing a party uh, during lockdown. For instance, <laughs> for instance, yet when the foreign office or the government issues a decree that so-and-so organization is banned and proscribed as a terrorist organization, such as Hamas in this case. And it's not, it's not a legal decision, absolutely. it's a political thing. It's a political decision. It didn't go to court. It wasn't contested by a judge and jury. This was entirely political. Why is it that this isn't a no-go area? Why, why is it that, I mean, we say this, yet we know in our history, I grew up with the Troubles, with the Northern Ireland yes, War. True. And it was Sinn Féin, it was Jerry Adams, it was we Martin McGuinness. We couldn't hear his voice Remember? on television their, or on radio. Their, their, <laughs> their, their faces were pixelated, their voice was done by an actor. I remember this. And yet now they are elected members of parliament, they, they, they are the biggest party elected in Northern Ireland, and their dream for a united island remains. You go to their offices and you see the map of their dream, the United Island. So, so these things, you know, we talk about South Africa, but we also have something much, much closer to home to, to compare with. So, so this is something that we also need to bring up. You know, in an interview that I did a couple of days ago, I was saying, you know, I don't regard Hamas as a, as a, as a terrorist organization. Okay, so my government did, but you know what? There are many European governments that didn't. So who says that we have to abide by what uh, either David Cameron said or by Theresa May or the such? Who said that we, we need to do that? Well, regrettably, Anas, this, this has really frightened the Muslims in this country. And uh, many Muslims know little about, what the, about their rights and have been intimidated so much that they choose not to do things that they can by law do. This calls for awareness, for education about what it is you cannot do so as to know what you can do. Because, I mean, the other day we went to a local radio here in London and, and we were told just before we started talking like this in a discussion like this, you cannot mention this, you cannot talk about this, you cannot refer to this. You can... I said to them, what the hell? If I knew, I wouldn't have come. I mean, what's the point? And then when we finished, I told them this discussion is going to do a lot of um, harm to the cause rather than benefit. You better not touch Palestine. Just stay away from Palestine. Don't talk about it if you cannot tell the truth. I can appreciate that you are frightened of Ofcom and of this and of that. Then don't touch it. Go and speak, talk about other, other things. It's uh, also expected, albeit still regrettable, that uh, the vast majority of the Arab people 
couldn't express their real emotions and their real feelings when it comes to Palestine. Some who could did, uh, but many couldn't. They couldn't speak out. They couldn't express their anger at the crimes that uh, were and continue to be committed. In some capitals, not all. I mean, we had in Rabat, we had Tunis, uh, we had we had Baghdad, we had you know big cities. Cairo, of course, no. But I think um, Kuwait, uh, Yemen, and Kuwait. Kuwait. So we saw an outpour of of, of support, you know, Amman. and, and solidarity. A huge, and, a huge rally in Amman. I mean, they they actually were trying to go to the border. To go to the border, and yeah. they, and the troops were fighting at them to get them to come back. So the the Rabat, uh, particularly the Rabat uh, demonstration, was particularly interesting because it, it's on the path of normalization, <laughs> and it just shows the gap, the disconnect between the people, you know, and. The government. The government statement wasn't <laughs> that really that uh, that good, but the uh, show of support by the public was people great. People spoke. The people spoke. Until when is this going to carry on? Until when? What what is it that will take it for another Arab Spring, another round of the uh, Arab until Spring the Arabs line? are free? I mean, the, the connection between Palestine and freedom of the Arabs is there for everyone to see, and no wonder that when the Tunisians took this to the streets. And then followed by the Egyptians, the Syrians, the Libyans, the Yemenis, and the Iraqis. The masses in the streets were shouting, the people want to bring down the regime, the people want to see Palestine free. And this was the slogan. There's a direct correlation, direct connection between the freedom of the people and the freedom of Palestine. The Palestinians are destined to continue to be at the forefront of resistance. But the freedom of Palestine, in my opinion, can be accomplished only when the Arabs are free, not when they when Palestine is surrounded by governments who are persecuting their people, who are oppressing them, and who are denying them the basic uh, freedoms, including the right to express uh, their opinions. Yeah, there is a link between the dictatorships, you know, and Palestine. You know, it's clear. And when Mohammed Morsi said in 2012, We will not leave Gaza stand by itself. Yes, that was that was his end. That was his. You know. The war immediately stopped. <laughs> But then he paid the price for it. He paid the price. And so, what happens today really explains why we have so many dictatorships. If there was real democracy in this region, you know, governments that leaders who were sincere and committed, you know, to the, the Palestinian cause. You know, um, the situation will be quite different. Yeah. You know, and 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 Hamas has exposed this, the resistance and jihad and all the other factions who who you know, undertook this operation. Because what these governments couldn't do in 75 years, you know, these factions were able to do. And the fact you know, that, that it's, it's, it is Arab Muslim countries, their their officialdoms that are actually safeguarding and protecting. Israel, you know, as we saw, I mean, the scenes we saw of Jordanians trying to cross the borders and being fought off by, you know, the members of the Jordanian you know, forces. I, I laughed when I read um, a tweet or something on, on social media. That I can hardly remember where I read what and where, but uh, someone was commenting um, on the uh, Interior Minister's uh, remark in Jordan, who said that uh, the Jordanian uh, forces were protecting Jordanian citizens because coming down to the Jordan Valley would be uh, would pose a danger to them. And the person who was commenting said, well, danger from what? From who? 
you are protecting who from who? Actually, they're protecting the Israelis. Exactly. And, that, and for that reason, I mean, we continue to go back and to hark back to the Arab Spring. And that you know, Anas, it's, it's just uh, another thought. If Egypt and Jordan alone, who happen to be neighboring Palestine, were to threaten the Israelis of severing ties, that alone would have been sufficient Uh, to compel the Israelis to stop the aggression on Gaza. Yeah, it happened. You remember in 1996 when uh, there was the assassination attempt of uh, uh, Khalid Mish'al and King, King, King Hussein said, you know, this will be the end of Wadi Araba. And they complied. And it was Netanyahu at the time. It was Netanyahu. Exactly. And he complied. <laughs> Immediately. Immediately, he gave the antidote, you know, because this peace treaty meant so much to them. You know, this is their lifeline. As I was saying, I mean, we continue to go back and to hark back to the Arab Spring. Probably the biggest existential threat to the Zionist project was that. The fact that the people, the, the Arab nations could be free, that would mark the absolute finality of, uh, of, of Zionism, not only in the region, but probably even even across the world. And that's why the Arab Spring was countered so so aggressively, so intensely, so thoroughly. Let's talk a little bit about what the Israel as well as with its allies are now planning for the Palestinians, not only in terms of uprooting resistance, if they could, but also regarding Gaza particularly and the people of Gaza. Talks of opening Rafah so that people can pour into the Sinai Desert. Talks of transferring the Palestinians of Gaza somewhere else. I don't know. Some people talk about Western Iraq. Others talk about Sudan. Others talk about, I don't know, some Omani district. <laughs> many, many talks of that. Well, it, What, what's the destiny of all this? Where are we with that? I think most of this is just mere speculation. But Gaza has always been a thorn in the side of Israel. I remember when Rabin said he wished he'd wake up one morning to see Gaza disappear in the sea. The people of Gaza have really uh, caused Israel a lot of uh, concern. But the Israelis have tried this before. I mean, they, they tried it in 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014. They've tried it repeatedly. And we, we have a proverb in Arabic that says those who insist on trying what they already tried, they, they are brain damaged. But let's take the worst case scenario, another Nakba. So what? We had a previous Nakba. Palestine is still alive. The Palestinian cause is still alive and the Palestinians are still there. Furthermore, this is not just a cause for the Palestinians. Just wait for the Arabs and the Muslims to be free and you'll see what happens. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, this is, this is quite, I mean, the, the, I don't know what it is, but uh, Gaza, what's in the water, that, the polluted water that, that, that the Gazans consume, It must have something that, uh, you know, is quite unique because I recall during the time of the Arab Spring when the Rafah borders opened and thousands of Ghazans poured out of Gaza for the very first time in their lives. Yes. And many commentators... Into warned, Egypt. Into Egypt, of course. When, uh, you know, many commentators, I remember, warned against this flood of uh, of Ghazans into Egypt and how they will dis de demolish Egypt they, how will they will they will take revenge for being imprisoned by you know the Egyptian side into uh, beyond Rafah and the the end of the day didn't come without every single man woman and child returning to Gaza and the gates of Rafah then closing behind them with not a single one staying 
in the newfound freed, you know, freedom. After having enriched the Egyptians, they bought uh, necessities yes, from yes. their shops and things. And... Absolutely. And the people of Arish and, and the nearby, they still remember those times. It's quite glorious for business. I would also uh, second the, uh, the, the, the statement that the people of Gaza would... Uh, I mean, and, and we, we saw it in so many clips, people holding, holding their dead children and saying that we will never leave. We will never leave. I mean, you, you talk about you know, probably 90% of that, the peoples of those regions. And you'd think that if offered, you know, a way out, they would uh, happily take well, it. Well, some, I mean, you won't blame them if they try to uh, find a, a safe haven anywhere because it's not easy what they're going through, definitely. But you are right. The majority of the Gazans are saying we, we, will, we would not repeat the mistake made by our Uh, grandparents and our parents in 1948 1948 when they were told okay you go out and then we'll uh, uh, get things uh, done and then you come back again they never came back again it's too early to really to tell what will happen in Gaza because the people of Gaza are determined to fight it to the end and how do we end how well how will this end how will this transpire what will happen well yani <laughs> No people remain weak forever, and the strong doesn't remain strong forever. Things will change ultimately. We've seen contradictions and weaknesses opening up inside Israel. I spoke about it before. And these will continue. You know, the guy who is the prime minister today, he's fighting for, for his survival, for his future. You know, and, and in, eventually, you know, that system is, is, is collapsing. And without the support of the West, without the support of the West, they would not have survived, you know. And, and so part of the, the, what happens in, in Palestine, how fast it happens, will depend on, on the kind of awakening that takes place in the global north, in the UK, in, in, in the United States, you know, in, in France and Germany. And it is happening in the United States. Most, a significant number of young Jewish people are, are waking up and speaking out against the Zionist project, significant numbers, you know. And so we have countries that are, and for reasons that are well known, like Germany, they're still pushing back, you know, and France, of course. By the way, I mean, how many times do Germany side with the wrong side of history yeah. within within a matter of a century? I exactly. Mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So things have to change in countries like that, you know, before, yeah, in order to, to help the balance, change the balance, you know, of power in, in Palestine. And bit by bit, it's becoming extremely clear that there is no other issue like Palestine that is drawing a marker between those on the side of justice around the world and those who are not. It's, uh, it's quite remarkable. It's a very stark example of the struggle between truth and falsehood, between uh, uh, right and wrong, but it's not unique in history. There are so many examples. The difference, of course, between what happened in America, in Australia, and New Zealand, uh, is in New Zealand, is that in the case of Palestine, the Zionist project could not finish off The, the indigenous population. They are still there. The only reason why the white man managed to, to, uh, to rule uh, what is today called the Americas and New Zealand and Australia is because they eradicated the indigenous population. And uh, th that's a very important point. Thank you so much. Fascinating discussion. Fascinating discussion.